0: Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. Santir here also. And we're back with another podcast for you. Uh, This time, we're going to be talking about another part of game development. Or rather, we're going to be talking about specifically the people and the teams uh, inside of game development.
1: Yeah, we'll also cover some other important topics of uh, game development that can have a big impact but don't really fit into the stages.
0: Exactly. So we're going to start with, we'll say, the different hats that you Yeah, kind of the major disciplines. Yeah, I think that's a good term, yeah. We'll start with my hat, which is uh, design. Uh, So... One of the things about design is that it is the laying out of the experience, basically.
1: Yeah, uh, it shouldn't be confused with art and programming. This is something that I think can happen because often designers need a little bit of overlap with those in their skill repertoire, in part because they might need to do some scripting, which is sort of like coding, and they might need to do some level design, for example, which can look a lot like
0: art. Yeah, because with the level design, there has to be an understanding of aesthetics and not only not only the concept of what feels good mechanically, but also what looks good to the player and what you're trying to convey with the way the world is made.
1: Yeah, it also requires some of the artist's eye in terms of figuring out how to lead people through an area mm-hmm. because you need to figure out how to direct the player in the ways that you want them to go. Uh, so that way they have the experience that you want them to have, which is hopefully a fun one.
0: Yeah, with that in mind, some of the specialities that you can expect to see in the design space are a level layout designers, experience designers, and when we talk about experience, that means things like um, what's the feel of various mechanics in the game, making sure that those actually roll out correctly. Um, that's also things like boss design or enemy design, and getting into other aspects such as people who deal strictly with numerical balance. Like a move may have utilitarian aspects as well as its numerical damage and realizing that when compared to another move that doesn't have a utilitarian aspect, how do you balance that out? Or can you even balance that out? Or do you need to add another utilitarian aspect to that other thing? All of these things show up in the design space.
1: Yeah. It turns out that design is an absolutely enormous portion of games, which shouldn't be too terribly surprising, but that means that you can subdivide it into a lot of different sort of ideas of what your focus is, what you understand, what you know how to work with. So something that's going to be a recurrent theme in this is because somebody is good at something or because somebody has this job title or this label as what they do doesn't mean that they can do all things that can fall under that hat. So if somebody's a designer, it doesn't mean they can do every aspect of design. There's going to be some people who are much stronger at level design than they are at trying to balance systems. There's somebody who's going to be much better at, say, designing the AI behaviors of an enemy mm-hmm. than they are designing the way that weapons work. in in feel versus somebody who might be really good at balancing complicated systems of lots of skills versus balancing the sort of aspects that a first person shooter would require. There's just a lot of different tasks and where one excels at at one of them, they may fail at another. So it's important to keep in mind that team members are not interchangeable with each other just because they have the same broad hat on. Yeah,
0: and one last thing on the design sector. It should be noted that, and this follows for the rest of them as well, Uh, You can expect there to be a lead, a lead person in the design space that's just kind of setting the pace for how things are going to go. And they usually are responsible in some regard for the making the different jobs that are going to be that the other team members are going to be fitting into on the design in the design space. Less so than a producer, but we'll get to that later.
1: Yeah, kind of a team lead. Uh, and there might be sub-teams that have their own leads that then report up. It depends upon how many people you have.
0: Yeah, if you're a small team, you might not run into this. So moving to the art, that has a lot of aspects as well. Maybe more than some might expect, um, and they're responsible for how everything looks, how things feel, how things move, conveying the right feelings with all of that visual aspect, in that regard, many of the specializations that show up in the art space are very similar to things that you're going to see, uh, well, when dealing with animated features. Although, with games, you're going to see a lot more stuff that you would find in, say, Pixar things than, say, in, well, standard animation. Although, that should be said, it's really dependent on what style of thing you're going to be working with.
1: Yeah. Something that's uh, very important to remember about art is there's, there's different types of art. Uh, So this is kind of a broad overview, but you have things like making 3D models, which is not a simple thing, and in and of itself has a lot of different stuff. But you have also things like concept art or sprites. These are different sorts of disciplines, knowing how to do animation for the different sort of style that you're in. 3D models require a different technique for animating than sprites or hand-drawn art do. And there's also, and this is very important, different artists are good at different types of art. There might be somebody who's really good at making characters, another person who's really good at making environments, somebody else who's really good at armor design, somebody who's really good at kind of figuring out lighting and palettes and coordinating stuff. They might be more of an art lead. So you have a lot of different things in art that artists might be good at. Again, a good environment
0: artist might not be any good at making UI art. And again, we come back to that concept of, Everyone has their own proclivities and their own skill sets, and let's be clear, there's nothing wrong with being a jack-of-all-trades. It's just understanding that not everyone is going to be that, and I would almost hazard to say that most people are not going to be that. Many of the people that are going to be working on your team, they're going to have the things that they either naturally do well or the things that they've practiced the most or the things that just get them excited. And so they're going to put in the effort to do it.
1: Yeah. I also want to mention just touching on models again. There's a lot that goes into 3D models. You have to model it. Sometimes you have to like redo the model with lower poly counts. Uh, poly counts being how many polygons are necessary to make it or how much data is required to store this model. Yeah. Um, the more polys you have, the better the quality, but the more space it takes up, which can cause a ton of different issues like bloated file sizes or it can make the game run really slow because the processor is trying to do too much you also have the model doesn't do anything you have to like rig it and potentially bone it i'm not entirely familiar with all these processes
0: yeah um, it's like rigging you rig the model up and you got to get the bones in there then you got to make sure that it, that the model itself cuz one of the things is if you make the model such that it's not able to actually bend properly then you can rig it and then it's just like oh this looks horrible and then you have to do it all over again but you you do that and then beyond that then you have the actual texturing um which is a thing in of itself because it's very a, important. Yeah, there's a lot of styling that happens there. Then you've got the actual animation itself, um, which there's you know varying different styles of actually animating um, as well as just making the characters work right. And then after you have all of that there, then you've got to get it into the game. Um, now, part of that is programmatic, and we'll get to that spot, but there's also making sure that that integration of that character, that whole thing fits into the environments that you want them to fit in. Yeah, so there's, like I said, a lot of work work in there.
1: But as Redcoat said, there's also programming. I probably have mentioned it in the past. I used to introduce myself as the technical director for Vernacular Games for anybody who remembers the old podcasts. And the reason for that is I am currently the primary programmer. And so I would generally break programming into a couple of different major areas. Probably the one people think of the most would be creating the main game engine. So this is the executable, the bit of code or lot of code that runs the game. It is the game on a code level. It is not the game on a complete level because that's going to include the things like art, the assets uh, and content the designers have created, um, any scripts that other people have made, the audio assets, like everything else, but this is what makes it into a game. So there are a lot of different parts to an engine and those are going to have a lot of different types of programmers working on them. So this is going to be things like a graphics programmer that makes the graphics engine, Uh, There's a lot that goes into that with making shaders and other things to make the game look a certain way. They have a lot of work, particularly when it comes to trying to optimize it so that way the code runs fast. Mm -hmm. The graphics code tends to be doing a lot, so it needs to run fast. You're going to have programmers that are audio engineers. They will probably work closely with the sound effect designers and artists, different ways of referring to people who make sound effects they're going to also have to coordinate closely with Tools programmers. Now, Tools is a different sort of category than the game engine. These are external programs that are used to create assets for the game or to do other useful functions. Typically, there will be some sort of like level editor, For those of you who have worked with Unity, Unity is kind of a a bit of a tool suite. It's kind of a a middleware, but it has a lot of tool aspects in it. Um, But this is going to be a really good example, actually, would be something like Photoshop. Now that would be a third party tool. Uh, A lot of users are going to use art development software created by a third party, because those tend to be fairly complicated to make. Um, But they might need plugins to allow them to export in proprietary file formats. Um, but tool programmers and sound programmers are probably going to need to work closely together to make sure that everything is hooked up correctly. So that way, when the designer says, I want this to play a sound effect, it actually does. Then there's going to be programmers on the engine who are also like specialties in just the overall infrastructure, getting all of the pieces to work together and communicate. If they have networking, there's going to be your networking team. These guys are special. They're amazing. And they do a lot of work. And it is a massive specialty to do network programming. It is
0: super complicated. Hint, hint. Network programmers are rare. If you want to learn how to network program, good on you. I want to find you.
1: <laughs> yeah, good network programmers are basically never going to be out of work because it's just such a valuable skill. Uh, but you also have things like physics. That's important. Gameplay programming, which is kind of this interesting field of setting up all of your mechanics to work so this is going to be say the person who implements the damage formula or the area where it reads in the damage formula and does stuff like this is very nebulous because it's based on each game
0: it'd be like in a fighting game the person who implements the high mid low system uh so that it actually detects them in a specific way and things like that
1: yeah or responds to collision uh detection with what happens, stuff like that. There's a lot of different things that can factor into it. and it's it's kind of messy um, and tends to squirrel all over the code. And then you have potentially things like UI, which is really important to have a good UI. And then you might even have specialists that work with debugging and optimization. So debugging, for those who are not familiar, is the process of trying to remove problems in your code that make it not work right. It turns out computers are incredibly literal machines. They will do exactly what you tell them to do. And it's very easy to tell them to do something that you didn't want them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they will not interpret your commands in a... Um, shall we say correct but imaginative manner mm-hmm. they will do like i said exactly as you say and trying to figure out what it is you said that makes them not do what you wanted them to do that's the process of debugging and it can be very nightmarish i'm not going to get into how nightmarish <laughs> but it is it is the stuff of nightmares for sure we've had our experiences with we that. have had our experiences multi-threading related bugs and memory related bugs tend to be the worst Uh, For those of you who are familiar with those, you probably agree. Optimization is its own thing. It's making the game run fast enough to actually be going at the frame rate that they want to hit. Uh, They being the team there's a lot that goes into this from trying to determine what parts of the code are running slowly to which parts that are running slowly are important to take care of. So for example, you might have some piece of code that is super slow. It just takes a really long time. It might take like five or six milliseconds, Mm -hmm. which doesn't sound that long until you realize 60 frames per second is something like 17 milliseconds. I think it's like 16.6 repeating. Yeah. So it's taking up like a fifth of your time for your frame, which is a lot of it but it happens like once every second or once every three seconds or something. It's like not a big deal that that's super slow if it's not happening that often and it's not really creating that many problems when it does compared to say a piece of code that is maybe a millisecond and you might be able to squeeze an extra half millisecond off and by doing so because it's called so much, you'll take huge wads of milliseconds off of every single frame that's potentially more valuable to optimize. So just figuring out where to optimize things. Also this is where being able to follow what's happening in the code is very, very useful. But anyway, I've probably talked too long about that, and I'm sorry for anybody who's bored, but uh, it's a very complicated field.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, many people would say that the programmer is a modern-day magician in many ways, and that's part of the reason why it's so complicated.
1: Yeah, and again, the constant refrain, a good network programmer, probably not so great at graphics. A good graphics programmer, probably not so great at networking. As just one example.
0: And with that, we've kind of covered three of the big and more recognizable disciplines inside of a team. But there's other parts of that development cycle. And now we're going to get into some of the parts that are handled more by your producers and the other parts like uh, community managers and things like that. But specifically on the producer's side, you've got... Team management. This is managing all of your different teams and sub teams. Say your, um, your design team might have a level team or they might be split up into different categories or your art team. You may have your modeling team and then you have your environs team and then you have, um, like concept teams or some things like that. And even on the programming side, you may have different teams of programmers for different elements. The important thing there is making sure that everyone is able to talk with each other, that it's easy for everyone to talk to each other, whatever form that comes in, like say, if everybody's got Facebook, okay, uh, then you're probably going to be using the Facebooks. Or if everybody knows what email is, uh, then you're probably going to be using email. But if it turns out that everyone's all over the place, as far as what they have that they can communicate with, you might end up having to make your own website for communicating with each other. I know we use uh, the Conboard, I think, to help with our communications a little bit there.
1: Yeah, something else that's worth mentioning is this is going to look different depending upon the size of your studio. Large studios probably not communicating over Facebook. They probably have their own internal instant messaging system. On the other hand, smaller studios may be using other things like Facebook Instant Messenger to communicate. It depends upon uh, also how disparate the teams are and stuff like that. Uh, Something else that can be a common sort of team arrangement is to have kind of mini teams of like a programmer, a couple designers, an artist that are working on different aspects. Like you might assign one of these mini teams to work on an individual level in your game. So that's a potential other arrangement. Uh, And another thing is making sure that people know who to talk to about various problems. Like you might have a designer that runs into a bug in their tool and making sure they know who to relay that to can be an important part of uh, the sort of team management aspect.
0: Yeah, and there's actually another thing that comes along with that, and this is one of the hardest bits, but it's making sure that not only do people know who they can talk to and they have the ability to talk to them, but making sure that they do do it. It doesn't seem like something that should be a responsibility, but it totally is. You want to make sure, first off, that people feel comfortable actually talking about when there are issues in the code. Um, you make sure that everyone understands that a thick skin is kind of required for this work. Things are going to go wrong. You're going to make mistakes. You need people to tell you when those mistakes happen.
1: I remember uh, at DigiPen, uh, where I went to college, we had game classes where you'd sit down in a group and make a game. And I remember in the very first one, one of the things that was said is you need to leave your ego at the
0: door. I remember that was a big thing. That was a big thing at DigiPen in general was just... Yeah, you, uh, you were pretty good where you were at, but you're trying to become more. And so that means that you can't think of yourself as the best, and you certainly can't think of yourself as perfect at this point. You've got to keep pushing.
1: Yeah, you can't be Mr. Hotshot. You may have been, I don't know why, I keep thinking of Smash Brothers, whereas, like, my group of friends back home, I was, like, the best. <laughs> Not so much once I got to DigiPen. But that same idea can apply to, all other fields it tends to be the very high achievers uh, very talented that sort of thing that are going into this sort of thing and they're very passionate and it's very easy for them to have big egos and big heads and yeah that will get in the way of collaborative endeavor so
0: big fish little pond Moving to an ocean, it changes a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So making sure that people are willing to communicate with each other, and not just in the fact of making sure that people don't have egos, but also making sure that people are actually comfortable with speaking in in the environment of your team. And, you know, this is in part on the team members themselves to be willing to talk, but you you also want to make sure that people feel okay talking about what's happening. Yeah. After team management, another responsibility that falls on the producer and, to an extent, some of the leads is, and this calls back to the design and the art and the programming, is that those are three very disparate groups. When we describe them, you notice that there was not much overlap in the skill sets there. So there is one very important thing, which is the integration of all of those components into one thing to make sure that your art actually fits into your program. Um, your program is capable of supporting the art that you're doing. The art evokes the design and the design works well with that visual style and the program can actually support that design. All of these things need to happen and team management actually plays towards that integration where because everyone is communicating with each other, ideally, you have people actually realizing, oh, you need this. Um, like, as an artist, you might not realize that on the programming side, they need. A specific thing to support what you're doing. But if you're talking to them about everything that you're doing, then they'll be like, oh, okay, that seems like that's going to be really hard with our system. We need to update it a little bit. Alright, we'll come back to you in a little bit and we'll figure this out, kind of thing. I cannot stress enough how important that communication is.
1: Yeah, you're reminding me of when we are working on Highway to the Moon, and the tools needed to be able to do a thing. Yeah, And how helpful it was for me as the person making the tool to have, for example, you as one of the designers using the tool to say, hey, can the tool do this, please?
0: Yeah, I remember that was a lesson that I had to get hammered into me um, was just, you need to talk about the things that are happening. Don't just make a workaround. Tell the programmer he might be able to, I don't know, fix it. (laughs) Yep.
1: And that's part of that communication is understanding, oh, I can have this changed or at least looked at.
0: Yeah, and that's another part of the environment issue as well, because I remember one of the reasons why I had that, that hesitation was I came from environments where I didn't feel like telling people about these issues was actually going to solve anything. In certain testing and development environments, um, you can end up in that situation where you, you feel like you can tell the groups that something is wrong, And then just nothing comes of it, or they say, tough it out. And that's definitely not what you want, particularly in a game development scenario. Because if you're when you're building those systems, you want to make it as easy as possible to develop. So along with team management, we've got schedule management, schedule management, another responsibility of the producer, although he also works with the team leads, as stated a little bit before, the main thing that schedule management ensures is that you've got your goals to reach now it's important to note that these are goals these are not deadlines uh, well unless you're under a publisher in which case they are deadlines that's the way it works That's what you sign up for to get money yeah but if you're setting your own schedule then you need to approach it as these are goals it's basically the idea of we want to have this done by this time will we make it I don't know we want to get there though um, usually when you're thinking about these schedules, you want to try and make estimates, but you're not going to know everything about it, especially if you're trying to do something new. Tune in next week for how terrible estimating is. <laughs> but the important thing to realize when you're looking at this is that idea that you set your goals uh, so that you know if you're ahead of schedule or behind schedule. So you know whether or not you need to try and make things more efficient, make things less efficient, or make some big cuts.
1: Yeah, determining when it's time to start cutting components of the design is uh, a really big deal. Making sure that you do that early enough that you don't waste a bunch of time half implementing stuff that needs to get cut is very important. Cuts are almost inevitable because scope management is extraordinarily difficult, especially when you're working without a lot of information about how long it's going to take you to do stuff it is difficult to estimate how long things are gonna take to do when you're unfamiliar with the processes necessary to do them. So newer teams are going to especially struggle with making realistic estimates. But in general, bad estimating skills will lead to things like crunch time, for example, especially when you're under the uh, scrutiny of a publisher, they will potentially throw off all sorts of things. One of the big things that can be thrown off by bad schedule management are things like marketing campaigns, which have to potentially start while the game is finishing up development. If a bug's discovered
0: late in development, it can throw off the entire marketing campaign. Most definitely, and that's really important because if you have a good schedule set up, you'll be able to ideally have a lot of things already in your backlog to start putting up there. Um, If you start too early, it's going to hurt you. Incidentally, if you start too late that can also hurt not as much though yeah starting too early is a
1: good way to um, build up a bunch of hype that then peters out you can see this happen with all sorts of things where it ends up getting delayed a bunch and then people are just not excited anymore i know for my own case when starcraft 2 was first announced i was super excited about it because starcraft 1 was awesome and i liked that game a lot and I was a broke college student at the time, and could not afford to get StarCraft 2, and my hype kind of died away. I did eventually get it, but it wasn't for quite a while. So, careful hype management is really important. When a schedule gets blown by some who-knows-what reason. Floods destroying a bunch of equipment that compromises development schedule. Probably the biggest thing is going to be game-breaking bugs found late in the process it can throw off this whole marketing campaign that can really wreck hype.
0: Yeah, and it should be noted, having the public relations, this is one of the things that can lead to you, you know, being in the beta stage and you find a few bugs and they're decently big, but it doesn't quite destroy the game. And you're just like, I have to ship this, so you just have to let it go.
1: Yeah, that exact reason of hype management is actually part of the reason why Nintendo tends to announce their titles so very late. And it goes into managing expectations also. It's why I think that the um, Dark Souls 2 network test was done prematurely in terms of managing hype because it presented a game different from what it ended up needing to be. There's also another very important caveat, which is that small teams are going to struggle with PR stuff for the very simple reason that they're trying to balance life, the community, and actually working on their stuff.
0: When balancing life, community, and actually making your stuff, there just isn't enough time in the day. Something is going to have to give or you're going to have to be extremely efficient about who's got what hats, where, when, and how. Either case, you usually end up having to make some decisions about basically lockstepping the team into, okay, we're developing now. Okay, we're PRing now. Okay, we're doing this now. It's not an easy thing. But speaking of things that are difficult for small teams, you have money management. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, um, we're just going to hit this really briefly, but it's difficult for big teams too. Yeah, the general gist is when trying to develop a product, you can make a lot of estimates about how much it's going to cost, and you can base this off of you know how you're going to do your payments, either using a commission-style payment model, which allows you to very concisely and concretely set this is how much it's going to cost because all of the elements are priced at a very set amount, and you just go it's done, this amount is paid, or if you go with an hourly the hourly is a little bit harder to manage although it does guarantee a little bit more that you're going to keep people around but hourly does mean that that price can balloon as soon as you start going into crunch time or overtime and so you really need to manage your hours uh, at that point
1: yeah this is actually uh, and that exact point that you just made about how overtime and uh, crunch mode can balloon costs from paying salaries basically is part of the problem that I have with, well, salary versus wage. Yeah. Right? Wages are money given on an hourly basis. a Salary is a set amount of money given on a regular basis that accumulates a certain amount over the course of a year. The idea behind a salary, as far as I understand it, is that it is to even out what would otherwise be an uneven wage. So for example, if there was a period of low work, you would be compensated equally for a period of high work, so that way, when you have that low work period, you still have money to eat. The problem that I have with it is it almost never seems to work that way. It seems to me to be a way to dodge
0: overtime payments. That's how it's usually used. It's really unfortunate because, like many things in business and actually in game development, Um, many of these things can actually be used to aid your developers. And really, they should be used to aid your developers. But oftentimes, they're used in, we'll say, not good manners.
1: Yeah. And actually, that whole idea of low work, high work is really important to think about when it comes to game development, because uh, as you may recall, last time we talked about the different stages of development. Well, as you recall, hopefully from this podcast, there are a lot of different disciplines. <laughs> you have some artists that are going to be good at say concept art, maybe not so useful if you're doing a bunch of 3d models, but you need that concept art. Well, what do you do with them once you're done making concept art, once you're in full swing in development, don't need any more concept art. well, Do you fire them? Well, there is an alternative, which is to have them start working on concepting out DLC for the game. Uh, and this is actually something that can be very useful to do with people who are better at the pre-production end of development is to say, okay, you've done the pre-production for this game and is now in production and we'll have you start working on pre-production for the DLC for that game while you're still in that mindset, that sort of thing. And then while they are working on that, the development team is making the game when they finish designing everything for the DLC, making sure that it works with the game, that sort of thing. They move on and start working on preparing for the next project, while the developers, who wouldn't normally have anything to do while they're waiting for a game to be pre-produced, work on the DLC. It's a way of kind of cycling things to keep people working and to kind of create some buffer time, so that way you can have maybe some lulls for some people and that sort of thing, uh, so that way they can take vacations or stuff like that. Uh, While well, still keeping the entire team busy, so you don't have that cycle of fire all the people you don't need, hire them back when you need them, which seems pretty ridiculous, and I kind of think it is. Uh, stability
0: can be an issue in game development. Most definitely. Most of the time in game development, you're working on contract, well, game development, and actually a lot of software work. Um, at least a lot of the software work I've ended up doing, you end up on contract. And what that means is it's not going to last forever, 12 months, 18 months, six months. And it might end at any point in that period if, heaven forbid, the product you're working on dies. Hopefully you saved your money. But that's something to keep in mind. Most, at least contract workers, they don't really find a home so much as they live off of their skills. Basically wander from place to place as a nomadic artist or a nomadic programmer, what have you.
1: Yeah. I will say that while this DLC model is useful, it does kind of come under fire from the public because they're like, but you had all of the stuff that was cut from the original games. Like, well, maybe it was cut, but not complete, and then it got repurposed in DLC, or, you know, it was giving people a job to do instead of firing them. This sort of early DLC can be very helpful for smoothing out the development process, Mm -hmm. as well as generating some long tail revenue from the game. So that would be additional revenue, you know, after the game's complete further along after that sort of initial release, that can help smooth out things during the process of the initial development of the next product. The other thing that's really useful about DLC is it provides you an income source when your game is being sold on the used games market, because used games are really great for the people selling them. They're awful for the developers of those games because they don't see any money from it. There's one other big topic that I want to address, and I know I've been bringing it up a lot over the course of this. but Different people have different skills, so I have definitely seen many a time where something is released for a game, whether it be a piece of DLC or just something in a patch that doesn't address a big concern of the community. This is often something that can happen because that thing that's a concern of the community is being worked on by the people qualified to work on it, but the people who are not qualified to work on it still need to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And they are going to be doing stuff and when it's done, it's going to be getting released. That doesn't mean that the problem isn't being worked on. And it also doesn't mean that the developer isn't aware of the problem. The developer is
0: probably very aware of it.
1: But it has to fit into their priority queues of things that need to be fixed and
0: based on how many people are qualified to fix them. I feel we've uh, covered a lot of, uh, a lot of the elements of development at this point. I could go over everything again, but we've run for quite some time this time around.
1: I I think the main thing that I want to say is there's one more concept I really want to hit on because it's funny. Oh, yeah? Polish. The second 90% of your game. So the first 90% is getting up to the point where you start working on polish, and then you begin that second
0: 90%. Oh, yes, yes. So polishing your product. So that means after you've made the game, you're like, sweet, this is the thing that I wanted to play, and it, it plays. Uh, but... When you do that, the the game is such a complex piece of work, there's going to be so many things that you have to fix, and so many things that you want to smooth out, so many numbers that you're going to have to get just right um, before you get there. Uh, the polish stage is one of the number one reasons why you end up with an infinite beta. Uh,
1: yeah, they're stuck in, in that. So, uh, with that, I think that this podcast is at a good point to close. Join us next week when we talk about Kickstarter. So, Kickstarter is something that has definitely had an impact on uh, the games community, and there's been a lot of controversies that have roiled up from it, and I think it would behoove us to discuss some of the reasons for the sources of those controversies.
0: Most definitely. So, we're going to go ahead and head to the sign-off. This is Redco signing off. And this is Santir
1: signing off. Play the
0: games you want to play, boyos.